Throughout history, mankind has universally recognized the importance of somebody's last words, the dying words on their deathbed, or maybe their final meeting. In fact, we have many wonderful examples of this throughout Scripture, especially in the Lord Jesus. We have recorded for us many sayings as he is approaching his death before he is going to be crucified and actually even, in fact, on the cross itself. We also have told to us in Acts, as we've been going through previously, his message that is contained uh, in summary form to the apostles and the disciples who were visited by him, speaking about the kingdom of God for 40 days before he ascends into heaven and reigns at the right hand of God the Father over all the earth. And so, therefore, we recognize the importance of these sorts of things. The Lord Jesus himself embodies this. And I, too, uh, have loved this particular verse because, specifically, verse 12 through 15, which we will begin with, Peter recognizes he is about to die, according to the word of the Lord. And so he gives exhortations. And so what we're going to do today for a quick outline is we're going to go uh, through, if you break it into three sections, we'll go through the middle section first, 12 through 15. And then we'll hop back into the first section, verse 3 and 4 specifically. It lays out the two, really the two major points that we could just cover 3 and 4 and walk away. But I I want to show you the whole section because it's wonderful. And 3 through 11 is this first section that really expands on Peter's first point that he would have the church know and us know. And then verse 16 through 21 is the second point that will be expanded on, but we'll be able to walk away with at least two of these things for sure. And so without any further ado, let's just hop into verse 12 through 15. And what we see here is that Peter lays out the situation which he finds himself in. It's important for both his hearers to understand what's in his mind as he goes to write this letter and make this address. It's important that he is about to, in the literal rendering of the text, he is about to make his exodus out of his body into the life beyond uh, in a temporary state before the resurrection, mind you. Now, here... He even says that the Lord Jesus has given him a special word about his death. I take this to be a reference to John 21, 18 and 19. You can go read that in your spare time. But what this situation brings out in the apostle is then a desire to restate and to tell the church particular things. He wants something for the people of God, even when he's no longer there. And so in this section, you'll notice there's really three things that he says that, that echo his disposition and really the strength of the conviction that he's bringing to these reminders that he's about to make. Verse 12 says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, he says, I think it right to awaken you by way of reminder. And then he also says, I will make every effort to do these things. 
So <clears throat> he has a, a, a strong impulse for his churches, the churches in the area. And we see, well, what is that desire? Very simply at the verse in verse 15 at the end. So that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what does Peter want? Peter wants them to attain to a certain level of doctrinal maturity. He wants them to have this, these truths, which is really formally revealed in verse 3 through 11, to be, as it were, like in their mental orbit. They can, they can always grab it and pull it to the very front of their mind. <clears throat> uh, truths, sometimes you are taught, and yet it's hard to recall. This is not the situation that he wants to persist in the churches, I, I ask myself, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't think the text says, but I wonder if Peter perceives a lack in the churches that he has been to. I know as a pastor <clears throat> that our common conversations and questions that I get asked cause me to think a couple things like, oh, there's a hole we need to fill. <laughs> and um, we'll work at that with you over time. At least that's what I think. Or I think, yes, they got it. Finally, <laughs> just saying this for three years, I finally got it. This is a great thing. And so Peter, in the same way, regardless of whether or not he sees a lack, he still wants to say, hey, listen, uh, there's some points I need to hammer home again and 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 again. Right, He wants to make very clear that um, certain things are staples in their mind, <clears throat> which should make you think, what's the implications of this? That means that the truths that we're about to cover are absolutely central to your Christian life. They're central. That means we ourselves have to cultivate a desire for these things. <clears throat> it is one of those uh, um, calls in Scripture that, um, it, at least by way of examination of ourselves, whenever we hear the truth of Scripture, especially things that are emphasized so strongly here, we, we must ask ourselves, uh, as these truths come into our mind, are we cold to them? Or are they hot and lively in our lives? If, if we are cold or unmoved by these sorts of truths, they feel mundane to us or something like that, then we need to take a cold plunge and awaken our hearts to them. So without further ado, let us look in verse 3 and linger a little bit. And then verse 4 and linger a little bit. Here are essentially the two major points that are being made. <clears throat> and then we'll expound further. Verse 3 reads, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We turn in this first section to a very... Uh, this is a verse three through 11, especially is very, very dense. And honestly, it would take multiple 
handfuls of sermons to unpack all of these things. But what is very clearly introduced here and really is the main idea and the controlling theme is very easily understood. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life, which is the broadest category you can have. And then he specifies just a little more, namely godliness. That is the focus. That's the controlling desire. Verse 3 through 11, that's what it's all about. Practical godliness lived out in our lives. Personal holiness. Peter's words, you'll notice here when he talks about our, our call. He says we have been called to his own glory and excellence. You see those words in verse 3. <clears throat> and excellence may not communicate the right thing. You'll notice that the ESV if you have that, uh, puts a footnote down there and it says virtue. In other words, the point is that since we've been converted in our souls, in our hearts, by the Spirit of God, this is for a particular purpose. Namely, that we would embody God's moral excellence. That's, that's the point. The excellencies here are moral excellencies, his virtues. So Peter is hammering this point home. He <clears throat> hopes that the church might at any moment recall, especially when we get caught in our typical sins, that we've been called to moral excellence. We've been called out of that and into another reality. And so <clears throat> if you don't remember all the details, what you'll remember is that you've been called to godly living. That's number one. Point number two, and <clears throat> then we'll unpack further, is, is in verse four. You already saw it a little bit. But in verse four, it says, by which, namely his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, key phrase, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This second major truth is always to be on our hearts, and that is <clears throat> Peter teaches that God's own moral excellence, his virtue, has given us something to hold on to, namely promises, promises of Scripture. This is where they are found. This is what is contained. And so in, in a real general sense, we could say, that the second main point is in uh, the centrality of, of the scriptures and specifically what the scriptures are given to do. Okay, That's, that is the main point that we would not lose sight of. We've been called to excellence and then have no way to get there. The way to get there is through the word of the living God. <clears throat> it is the means to moral excellence. And so in summary, Peter simply desires for the church to have an absolutely firm grasp on godliness and the function of the Bible, which serves that goal. In a statement, you could say you don't get to godliness, true godliness without the Bible. Can't happen. And so, <clears throat> therefore, uh, there's many implications on this. And what I want to do is unpack, 
unroll a bunch of quarters onto the ground. If you heard that. Uh, I want to unpack in verse 3 through 11 like a, like a survey. It's not unpacking really. It's, it's a, a survey of the different points that give this uh, really simple um, personal godliness texture. It gives us a, a larger understanding. And what I w- want to first do is just note that <clears throat> this uh, holding on to the promises of God is the way that we become partakers of the, as it says here, divine nature. And because that phrase trips people up very often, I just want to briefly comment that there are two kinds of attributes that are in God. There are those attributes which are communicable and those attributes that are incommunicable. Those are the two categories and all that simply means is the, the incommunicable attributes are things like infinity, eternity, and immutability, omniscience. You can think of things like that. Those are attributes of God that cannot be shared with the creature because you're not to become God in that way. In any way like that. Rather, there are things, however, that are imparted to us, worked in us, that are originating God. Namely, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These are common attributes that find their origin in God, but are to be in us. So Peter has this in mind. It's just another way of talking about participating in God, specifically in his attributes that are, that are supposed to be ours as the image of God. It's the things that we can actually reflect. <clears throat> Secondly, I have five of these, by the way, and I have a couple double pointers, so maybe seven. So the second point in verse five is faithful striving. Verse five says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, <clears throat> faithful, I, I think the best rendering, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the Legacy Standard Bible. It's, it's John MacArthur's people's update on the uh, New American Standard, and it's really good. I have a one-word modification, and, and I would... Take it to the bank that that's the best translation that you could provide in English that makes the sentence really clear. The translation that that should be here that makes things really crystal clear concerning the point that I've already really made is in verse 5. It should say, now for this very reason, applying all diligence by your faith, supply moral excellence. By your faith, supply moral excellence. So the point here is to say that the, the scriptures produce moral excellence. And what that means for us is we have faith in them. And that's what produces it. It just makes clear that virtue and faith are held together really tightly. And one produces the other I read Tom Schreiner this week, and he beautifully comments this way, quote, trusting God 
is the root from which all other virtues spring. This is what's communicated in here. In other words, it is faith in the promises of Scripture which produce life transformation. That's how it happens. And so that's faithfulness right there. Faithful striving. We often want to separate these two categories, and we ought not. Uh, Strenuous effort is not opposed or incompatible with faith. In fact, one is vitally required for piety, godliness to actually flower in your life. Strenuous effort doesn't come by being a couch potato. Uh, Or, excuse me, uh, virtue doesn't come without strenuous effort. It doesn't come by being a couch potato. Excuse me, correction. It comes through your faithful striving, believing things and executing them by the power of God and not otherwise. This is why many for years, 20 years, 30 years, can remain stagnant in the faith because there is a lack of striving by faith. Now, there's a virtues list. I'm just going to cover what they are, but you'll notice that they are tied together. And I think probably a sermon deserves to be on each one of these words and then the connection between them and how one interrelates to another. We don't have time for that today. Just notice that the virtues that are listed, or as is the ESV says, the, the qualities that he wants to remind them of are listed here. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, piety or, or godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Okay, these are the moral excellencies that he wants the church to have in mind. So get them tattooed somewhere and remember them, even if it's behind your eyelids and through memorization. Now, I love this verse 8 and 9. This is negative in the way that he puts it, but he describes this kind of faith, striving for holiness as an organic thing. Now, it's negative, and we'll make it positive in a second, but look in verse 8 and 9. It says, if these qualities are yours and are, listen to these words, increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So positively, if you are striving by faith to put on these qualities, the the nature of the faith that we have is naturally increasing, naturally growing up. And rather than being ineffective, it is productive. It does things and it does things well. And then it also makes you fruitful, makes you abundant, some 20, some 30, some 100 fold. Now, notice this is fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. In other words, faith in Jesus must translate into real life actions. Love for Jesus can't live in a world of abstraction, but has tangible effects. It must. It's the nature of it. If it does not, Peter warns of a blindness and a forgetfulness that is 
dreadful here. And at its worst, in verse 11, verse 10, falling does mean to damnation. Not that anybody could lose salvation, but we are all um, baptized and in the church, recognized by one another as believers, whether or not that's the heart reality. And so therefore, this warning is a serious one for all of us. If we are lacking the positive virtues listed here or struggling with persistent sins in these regards, what it demonstrates is that we have entered into or declined into a sad estate of not even being able to translate our personal forgiveness into our lives. That's why you'll see people who say that I'm forgiven by Jesus and they live in licentiousness. This, this shows that they, they don't, the connection's not actually made. There's no clear understanding of the basic central message of the gospel. And therefore, <clears throat> godliness, as we have seen, is the result of a gospel understanding. Now, <clears throat> Verse 10 and 11, this is the last part of the survey here, um, is an exhortation. And really, it comes out this beautiful desire for the church. And first, the exhortation in verse 10, very simply is, is practice these qualities. We're just to extract it. Practice these moral excellencies. That's the call. Simple basic. It's, it's hard to accomplish. It's easy to understand. But um, since these virtues, I should point out, are conceptual, they are abstract in nature. It is not the practical list of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That is something you have to fill in your particular situation at this particular time. So for example, you might run across, uh, uh, as a parent, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Certainly, if you've been convinced, as I've tried to do, to lead family worship by my argumentation, no doubt you will at some point lack steadfastness and stumble in a particular place. The, the steadfastness that's required is to be applied to your obedience to other commands. They're to go together. This is your moral character that drives obedience in a continual regular way. And so um, you might fail to execute your resolves. And in that case, you confess that you've fallen short of steadfastness and you ask for the strength of Christ when you're, uh, when you're drained of power because we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's how it works. So however those things work out, an easy way to start doing this is go, okay, steadfastness, where do I fall short of that in my life in the specific area? And you go, okay, that's what virtue I need. And, and what does faith look like here? That's, that's a way to do it if you want to. <clears throat> um, now, his desire for the church, verse 11, uh, end of verse 10, verse 11, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter makes 
these strong exhortations because he desires what is in verse 10 and 11 here. And really, this is the kind of pastor everybody needs. This is the kind of pastor. This is the kind of congregant that you guys need to be to one another. Ones who will exhort to do what is right or away from what is wrong, but they make known to you or they have in their hearts this desire. Namely, they don't want you to fall into sin and misery. They don't want that for you. Rather, they want, on the other hand, if you will, when you get up to the kingdom, as it were, to have a a red carpet entrance and star treatment, They want it to be lavish and rich in that sense, not getting in by the skin of your teeth. That is the heart's desire of the apostle and ought to be ours toward one another. So this is godliness, practical godliness. And because this is a large section in the second one, Uh, The second point is very simple, but it's unpacked in 16 through 21. And I want to note a couple things, and I just want to lay out um, an extended analogy so that you might uh, put this into practice. So in verses 16 and and following, you see here that there's a couple uh, things that he says are superior and that are true. So first, you notice that <clears throat> there are two comparisons. The first one that you see is we have not followed cleverly devised myths, but rather, what? Rather, we have been eyewitnesses. This is superior to the other. And then even more superior to that, is the scriptures in comparison to hearing the word of the Lord audibly. The scriptures are more sure, as said. And so we're going to cover those two here in just a second. <clears throat> but as we read in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. To us, that doesn't have as much pull or bite. Like, what kind of comparison is that? One's a myth and the other is Jesus. Well, here's the reality that we all must understand, that myths have held sway in the millennia and the ages over every society. You can just think for just one second and think there are Greek myths that are still abounding. There are Roman and Oriental and Norse and all sorts of fables that hold sway and really capture whole civilizations for millennia. They, they are powerful things. They're not small and light. And it is true that we have American myths that are concocted, that are entirely made to be believable and steal away the soul. I was in Barnes & Noble yesterday and good night. They're in the Christian book section. <laughs> uh, maybe half of them are bunches of cleverly devised myths to capture you and steal you away from obedience to Christ. This is something that is alive and well for us. We ourselves understand that that's not what the story of Jesus is 
at all. It is the eyewitness testimony to the Son of God, who, though eternal, took on human flesh for us and our salvation. He was seen. He was touched. He was followed. He was demonstrated to be a perfect worker of righteousness and the miraculous power of God, even raising people from the dead, himself being the chief and foremost of all of those. So in, in fact, Peter here wants to say that seeing the glory of Christ revealed on, this is a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that Peter, James, and John went up to the Holy Mountain and they heard, can you, I just can't even imagine this. Can you hear God, the Father himself, standing there and you see two, two dead guys talking with a living guy, Moses and Elijah. Jesus is shining with the glory of the sun. <laughs> Terrifying as all this is. Then God's voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's a glorious thing. Most of us just thinking about it go, that's the best thing that could ever happen. That's way greater than a fable. For sure. <laughs> and even greater than that, our faith, because the apostles knew that they were laying the foundation of the church, there would be a time of no apostles. And so what would we have? The scriptures. And in fact, this he gloriously says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This is even more superior than that experience that Peter and the apostles had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our foundation, what is so central to us, is the scriptures. This point has been made, right? And so, um, if the word is superior, I want to um, just look briefly at why. Why is it superior? Now, you may not encounter Roman Catholics every day, or you may not encounter Eastern Orthodox or, or Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or whatever, but <clears throat> they can't go with us here on this point. It's the scriptures plus something else. And here, we must find our, our um, we must understand why it is that the scriptures are to function in this this totalizing way for us. And that's in verse 20 and 21. Some of my favorite verses concerning the nature of Scripture. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, super important, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> There's a lot in this text. It, could, it deserves its own sermon. But let me just simply state it. A, a prophet or biblical prophecy is, is very simply somebody, primarily a man, uh, declaring the will of God to the people. And when it comes to the apostles and prophets, those things are infallible. And here it is a prophecy of scripture. So take any scripture writer and what they wrote. That is what is in view. 
the the prophecy itself um, is a declaration of God's will. And what the apostle emphatically declares is that this is of first tier importance. You see that in the text? He says, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, it's very similar to what Paul says in first uh Corinthians 15, I declare to you of what's of first importance that Jesus Christ died and rose again. It's the center of the gospel. And then in the same way for us as the church, this is of first importance. It's the highest rung of our understanding. And that is the nature of the scripture. And he does it in the most totalizing way that you can imagine. You see it here. It says, no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so this statement is a declaration that the divine will, God's will recorded in scripture, does not, does not find its explanation, like what it means, nor its origin in the creature, although we're involved in the process. <clears throat> Rather, the spirit carries men like, like babies. And it is these men who, in a direct manner, thus saith the Lord, with, with no mistakes, no muddying, directly speak God's word. This is why in my first sermon I preached on 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says that all scriptures are god Breathe. They are our source because they are God's. Not what I think God would say. They are what God says. Infallibly. So <clears throat> let me just make one last exegetical point in verse 19. It is, we have the prophetic word. And now you know that this is the scriptures. More fully confirmed. And here's the point to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then I would just summarize until the second coming. The world must be seen from our vantage point in one way that's central to us as a dark place, especially when Christ's word does not permeate society like water in a sponge. We should one day, I believe we will be able to press down on the sponge of all cultures and the word splashes out everywhere. And right now <clears throat> that is not the case. The, the word in America, it seems that there is a gloomy haze and mist that is thickening. And therefore this is a strong encouragement to us today. It's the strongest encouragement I think I can make. That is, church, pay attention to the prophetic word of Scripture. For it is the lamp shining into our present darkness. This is where all of our answers are found. If you neglect this action, of course, you will not do well. And in fact, you will stumble in the dark. You will lack the necessary light to live righteously, lack the necessary light to be a virtuous man and woman. 
let me put it this way. The wisdom of the philosophers produce no light. The writing of the academy, no knowledge. The religion of man cannot illuminate the soul. The word of the living God alone shines like a blazing fire, emanating light everywhere it burns in the hearts and the minds of us as God's people. And I want to take this as an extended analogy. The lamp shining. Beautiful picture. And the exhortation is simple. Pay attention to the light. How do you do that? And I want to give you an extended analogy. And some of this, I hope it doesn't feel super forced. (laughs) Because it's an extended analogy. Sometimes it is. But you will understand my point, I hope. And I want to give you a vision of... Paying attention to the light in your, the realm of your household. Elders will control how it happens in the church here, of course. Uh, primarily, they will guide the light here, and you all will too. But in your homes is central and, and must not be neglected. It, it is of first importance to you and to all of us, really. And that is uh, the first point is... Uh, that you recognize that in a home, there are different kinds of lights that exist there. The, the central light source in your home is, is the one that's overhead. And that's in all various different styles, but it's an overhead light source. And so <clears throat> let me ask in our analogy is what turns your house into a realm of light? I would say men, you are primarily... Women and children, you are responsible too for this, but you are primarily responsible to hang the lamp of family worship, which makes the home radiant. It is the thing that brings brightness to all in the house. I I call you men specifically to ignite and sustain the flame of family worship Monday through Saturday by gathering in your home 20 minutes to pray the word to sing the word, to read the word, to explain the word, to discuss how the word applies. This is how you lead your family as a whole in paying attention to the lamp shining in the dark place. Secondly, there's another type of light in the home. You could call it a a task, a task light. It throws brightness in a specific area of your house and provides greater clarity there. It might be one that sits under your overhead light in your sink area and it it shows the dirt and grime on your dishes so you can get them off a little bit more thoroughly, right? And so these lights appear all over our house for, for various different tasks. And so what I would call you to do is install a lamp next to your chair in the morning by opening up the Bible and studying it personally and praying over it before you start your day. Put a lamp on the dining table with thanksgivings over your meal and catechism practice. Hang a lamp in your closet for private confession and set a lamp on your nightstand for prayers of intercession and thanksgiving. Put task lamps Everywhere in your house by praying, reading, memorizing, reciting scripture, 
or, or, or any of the above things. Lastly, candlelight. Ladies, you love this one the most. Candlelight. How much does a single candle, a single candle, when you light it, how much, how much light does it put off? All of us might say not much. <laughs> Whatever the measurement is, it's not much. But think about around your house putting 100,000 candles everywhere. First of all, don't do that. Somebody will die. <laughs> but here's my picture. Picture this as I go through. Think of what I mean by, by this. 100,000 candlelight in your home. Here's what you do. You need to light 100,000 little candles of speaking the word in your home. Giving exhortations to your spouse and your children, your friends and coworkers, church, church members, whoever comes in your home to faithfulness. Be faithful to the Lord. Or encouraging them in whatever situation that they find to trust in God. It looks different. You do it in the bedroom with your children and it looks one way and it looks another way in the bedroom with your spouse. But encourage one another and light candles in those places. Confess your sins to one another quickly and often. Light those candles of forgiveness by the word everywhere you go. Loudly exclaim the glories of Christ and light candles wherever you find yourself. Telling of the great work that you see God doing in another or that he's doing in the world and you're thrilled about it. Speak the words of hope in the promises of the Lord. Can you picture that? Like all the little situations, there's a candle in every part of your house because you filled it with the words of Christ and it is richly lighting your environment. And so because this is a task that takes Lots of virtue, (laughs) takes lots of diligence, lots of intentionality, lots of of true love to God. Let us just recall our duty to pay attention and practice the word and uh, let us ask for help from God in prayer.